I want to tell you that the message today is another one of those messages that the temptation is to try to make this make sense in your head, and I'm not aiming at your head again, I'm aiming at your heart again today, okay? So it doesn't have to all make sense up here. I want it to penetrate your, your heart today. This is a, a heart message, and it's based on something that I'm told that we all have. I certainly have experienced it in my life, and what I want to talk to you about is this word called shame. Any of you ever felt shame before? You felt ashamed? Yeah, I want to talk to you about that today, and I am told that it enters our life as early as we begin to develop language. So it's like somewhere between like, you know, two years old or so right in there that, that shame enters. And it's different than guilt. Guilt sounds like this. Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I'm what's wrong. There's something wrong with me. I'm, I'm broken. It's not that I broke something, but I'm broken. And the interesting thing is, I'm told by those who study it, they call it the swampland of the soul. Does it ever feel like that for you? It's like a, a swamp. And once you get in it, it seems almost impossible to find your way out. And the reason it is that hard is because shame is something that you cannot cure all by yourself. Oh, I know you wished you could. Because if you could, you would have by now. But you can't cure shame all by yourself. Shame comes from a fear of rejection. Mm. How many of us have felt that when we made a mistake? That it wasn't, oh, I made a mistake. It's, man, I am a mistake. And it begins to set in. And you're thinking, man, if there's some way that I can get rid of this, if there's something that I can do... But I want to tell you today that the, the way out of shame is our way back to each other. That the only way to cure shame is to be in a community that understands compassion and loves and accepts one another. The only place that you can get rid of shame. So I want to talk to you for just a moment and then we're going to move to this story. It's one you know by heart. That's what's dangerous about it, by the way, is that you know, many of you know this story so well. It's the story of the prodigal. But I want to tell you another story real quick. I want to tell you the story about Adam and Eve. And if you remember Adam and Eve, when they mess up, they begin to experience shame. In fact, we've read in Genesis, it says that before that, it says they were naked and they were, what, unashamed. That's got to be a great place to live, isn't it? I would like to know what life looked like pre-shame. I'm like, that had to be amazing. But it said they were naked before God and they were unashamed. And then as soon as they sin, they're instantly afraid of God. They're instantly afraid of community. And what do they do? They go hide. Oh, that's what shame will make you do, won't it? It'll, it'll cause you to hide in broad daylight. You try to find a way to disappear, to not be seen. And so they are, they are naked and they are afraid and they are hiding and they are trying to cover themselves. And God says, you can't do that. So now when Jesus comes, this is actually Genesis revisited. That's what I love about this story. I don't know if you've ever considered it this way, but the story of the prodigal is the story of Genesis with the fix. This is how you fix it. Jesus said, this is how you fix it. Now here's the context. He's welcoming in 
sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and they love Him because they feel this thing that shame is looking for. Does anybody love me? Will anybody accept me? Can anybody see me with some value in my life? And Jesus is doing that. And the sinners love Him. And so He draws them. But then there's the religious. And it says that they start grumbling. If you want to follow me, I'm in Luke chapter 15. It says, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. He, ugh, right? Ugh, that's what shame says. It's like you're, you're ugh. And, and the religious look at those who are in sin and go, ugh. And so they, they're grumbling. And so Jesus decides to tell them some stories. And He tells them this, this parable. A story is something that it, it really didn't happen, by the way. Most of us think that there really was a prodigal and that this was a real story. It's, it's just a story. But what it's meant to do is make us put ourselves in the story so that we can learn a truth that God's trying to reveal to us. So Jesus says, I'd, I'd like to tell you a story. And He begins and He says, there's two sons. One son, he's the good son. He gets everything right. Any of y'all ever had a sibling like that? Right? <laughs> They're the good one. They're the one mom and dad love. They're the one that gets everything right. They get good grades in school. They, you know, they're this and that. They're pretty, all that. And then you got this other son. And he's like, man, I'm just a goofball. And he's like, I'm never going to fit in here. I'm never going to get it right. This, uh, this other child's always going to you know, show me up. And so I got an idea. I've got an inheritance coming to me. Now the way this worked in the culture is the inheritance came at the father's death. The oldest child got a double portion and the youngest son got what's left. He says, well, I'm just going to get what's left anyway. He said, Dad, I want what's coming to me and I want it now. And that would have been a slap in the face to any father of that day. It would have been incredibly shameful for a son to say, I could care less about my family. I don't want anything to do with them. I just want what's mine. Give it to me. And I'm leaving. And that's what he does. And you know what the father does? He lets him have it. Totally against culture. In that day, the father would have took it, taken the son out in public and he would have slapped him in the face. To show to everybody that this son is no son of mine. And he would have heaped that kind of shame on him. But this father doesn't do that. He lets him go. And he gives him that portion. And it says that, the, that he goes away. And in verse 13 of chapter 15 it says, And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and he went on a journey into the distant land. Oh, have any of you ever visited the distant land? Is there anybody in the room that knows anything about the distant land? You know, it's, it's that place where the grass was greener. <laughs> it's, it's that place where you thought, you know what? I always get told no at home. But I'm going to go to the distant land because when I go there, the only thing they ever tell me is sure, yes. Have what you want. Take more. And so you go into that distant land where you just kind of fill yourself up. And for a while, it feels really good, doesn't it? If y'all hadn't been there, I'll tell you, it feels really good. Some of you know what I'm talking about, and the rest of you are sitting there lying in shame. 
But you, you venture over to the distant land because over there they always tell you yes and it feels like a lot of freedom over there because you're like, man, you can do whatever you want over there. You can't do what you want at home. And so you go over there and a lot of times you go over there just being curious, right? Nobody ever goes over to the distant land thinking I'm going over there because I want to be a lifetime alcoholic. Right? Nobody ever goes over to the distant land and thinks, I'm going over there because I want to be addicted for the rest of my life and I want to kill myself. Nobody ever goes to the distant land thinking that. You go curiously. You go because of the allure of some kind of freedom. And, and, and then when you get to the distant land, this always happens. Look at verse 13 again. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Every time you go to the distant land, you'll lose it all. It'll either kill you or it'll put you in prison, but you will lose it all in the distant land. But by the time you realize it, you feel trapped. And the distant land says, wait a minute, where do you think you're going? And you're like, I, I, need, to, I need to get out of here. I need to do something different. But the distant land says, oh no, you, you can't do anything different. See, I, I got you now. And, and now I've taken everything away. So you don't even have the capacity to get back. I took your family. Remember, you walked away from them. I, I took all your money. Look at your checking account. Oh, yeah, you don't even get a checking account. You operate on cash and you don't even have any of that. And you start looking around trying to find a way back. And you can't even find a way back because the distant land has taken everything. And then you start thinking, but I, but I want my family back. And you're like, mm -mm, no, I can't have it. I, I want my, my freedom back. My, no, I can't have it. I, I want my joy and my peace back. No, that ain't what we do in the distant land. And so the distant land says this, says here, have, a, have another, have a joint. Have a, have a drink. Have a look. And just forget it. Now look what happens. Verse 14. Now when he had spent everything... A severe famine occurred in the country and he began to be impoverished. Did any of you remember in the story that there was a famine? I am told that most Americans, when they read the story, they never see the famine. Like 90% of Americans who read this story don't know that there's a famine. Because we're so individualistic, we don't understand what the famine is all about. But we experience it. The famine is this. When you've gone into the distant land and you have lost everything circumstances will turn on you. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? The circumstances turn, and all of a sudden, when everything was free and easy, now there's a famine in the land. Your vehicle broke. You got kicked out of your house. And now you're looking around, you're going, oh man, there's a famine. You see, the third world countries, they understand the famine, and they preach it in this prodigal story because they understand that we're not meant to live alone. Can I say that to somebody in the room? Some rugged individualist that thinks they've got to make it all on their own? You weren't meant to. And what the rest of the world knows that we don't know is eventually a famine comes to the land. And that's when family's important. That's when the people that love and support you become important. But a, a family comes. That may be you say, I didn't get into addiction. I didn't get into drugs and alcohol and all those things. But I have been to the end of myself. Anybody like that? You, you came to an end of yourself where there was just a famine and you realized, I apparently don't have what it takes to be successful in the world. I, I apparently don't have what it takes to do this next thing. And it says, and so he went and he hired himself out 
to a citizen of the country, and he began to feed the swine. Now, if you were an Israelite feeding swine, that's as low as it gets. It doesn't get any lower than that to a Jew, to an Israelite. They don't eat pigs. They don't have much to do with them. The pigs are the trash collectors. They eat the trash. That's all they're good for. And here he is. He's having to feed those. And he's thinking, man, I wouldn't mind some of that slop right now. Hmm. And so there he is. And it says in verse 17, but he came to his senses. There's that place where the Father is hoping that everybody comes to their senses. Another translation is, He came to Himself. A lot of times we have to get to that place where it feels like we're at the end of ourselves, but actually, you know what? You're in a good spot. That's actually where you came to your senses, where you realize, I can't do this. I can't fix this. I'm at an end of myself. And listen to what He says. How many of my Father's hired hands are there? And they have enough bread, and I'm dying here in hunger. Do you hear the, the sorrow in his voice? Do you, do you hear the remorse for what he's done? He's, he's beginning to become eat up with sorrow. And he says to himself, I will get up and I'll go to my father's house. See, when he came to his senses, he said, you know what? It was better at my father's house. There's a place where you got to come to. It says, I think it's better with God than where it is with me right now. That place of, of sorrow. But it's a vulnerable spot. Ooh, can I tell you that? It's vulnerable. When you're thinking about making a change, because you've been in the distant land so long, you don't know what it looks like to live free. If you've been eat up in shame for so long, you don't know what it looks like to get around people. So it's vulnerable to think, I'm going to go and admit that I've done something wrong. Ooh, an American admitting that they did something wrong? Y'all not listening, are you? I'm going to say that again. An American admitting that we did something wrong? Oh, it's not our fault, is it? No, it's somebody else's fault. But listen, you can tell this is godly sorrow because he ain't blaming anybody. All he's saying, it was better where I came from. And he's thinking, man, I'll get up. And I'll go to my father's house. And, and it's that thing where you're trying to muster up the courage to come back to God. Any of you ever done that? You're trying to muster up just enough courage to see if you can walk through the doors of a church or walk back to your family or to your spouse and your pride is screaming, don't do it! They're just going to make you look like a fool. Don't do it. You're just going to be embarrassed. Don't do it. They're just going to forsake you there. And you're like, ooh, go. Don't go. Go. Don't go. But he says that, he said, I'm, he practices. He practices what he said. You ever gotten in trouble and practice your speech? You know, you, you've done something kind of stupid and you got to go back to your spouse and you got to apologize so you practice it, try to get it right. Well, he, he practices speech, and here's the speech. He says, I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me a hired man. It's interesting there. He says, I'm no longer worthy. That's what shame says. You're not worthy. It says, you're not, you're not worthy. You're not worthy of love. You're not worthy of forgiveness. You're, you're not worthy. And so the, 
the shame is, is building up and he's got to decide if he's going to stay in this land and die or if he's going to get up and take a chance and he doesn't know what the outcome of his chances are going to be. And so it says that he, that he got up and he came to his father, verse 20. This is the, my favorite part of the story. Are, are you ready? It's going to be your favorite part of the story too by the time I get done. He got up and he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion on him. And he ran to him. Can you picture that in your head? He sees his son far off. The only thing he feels in his heart is compassion. That's my son. He's coming back. And he looks and he sees him. And it says that he, that he ran to him and he embraced him and he kissed him. Why do you think he ran? Is it just because he loved him so much? Is it, is it because he, you know, he just loved him so much that he ran? I'd actually propose that there's another reason that he ran. Because you see, in those days, if you were a man of high estate, if you were a gentleman, if you had wealth like this father had, you don't run. Some of y'all sitting there saying, boy, I fit right in that culture. I don't like running either. He runs. You see, back in those days, you got on some long stuff. You know, you got to reach down and grab that thing and you got to pull it up. Oh, yeah. Some of you men know what your legs look like because we're like, oh, I don't, nobody needs to see my leg. They sure don't need to see my hiney when I run. You know, and that's why you don't run because you won't show nothing. But what does he do? He's got to reach down. He's got to pull that thing up. And he's got to run. And ain't no telling what he's showing and he don't care. And it's more than because he loves it. I propose to you it's because the father realizes he has to get to the son first. Think about that for just a minute. The father realizes I have got to get to the son first. Because if any of my servants who know what he did, if they see him coming and they talk to him first, what if they run him away? What if they embarrass him and he turns around and he leaves before I can get to him? i got to beat them. What if that older brother, you know that one that gets everything right, what if the older brother would have gotten to him first? Because you know what he would have said, I tried to tell you, it's the thing that those who are in shame never want to hear, right? I told you so. I told you, if you did that, this was going to happen. He just knows that the older son is going to go to that younger son and say, see, I told you you were going to waste everything. So what does the father do? He says, i got to run. And he takes off and he says, I got, I've got to beat everyone to the son because I have to let him know that he's welcome back at the house. And so he, he comes, he runs with compassion and says that he hugs him and he, he kisses him. And then the, the son says, okay, this is going pretty good, better than I thought. Okay, let's jump into the speech and let's see if we can, we can do this thing. And so he jumps into the speech. And verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's getting ready to go into this speech that says, I don't deserve to be your son if you'll just let me be a hired hand. That'll be good enough. I want to speak to somebody in the room. 
that says you can't imagine life being any better. That you can't imagine anybody treating you any better than a hired hand. And so you can't even let yourself imagine being fully restored to God. You can't allow yourself to imagine being fully restored to anyone. You can't, you can't even dream of it. You can't think of it. And so the Father, He must know that that's what's in the Son. Because look at verse 22. But the Father said to His slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on Him. Put a ring on His hand and sandals on His feet. and Bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat. We're going to celebrate tonight. You see, He realizes that when the Son came home, His mind was not completely right. He thinks all He can do is be a, a hired hand, a servant in the family. So the Father says, quickly, you've got to bring a robe. I didn't tell you, but back in those days, clothes were a luxury. So picture Him running just one more time, can you? Picture Him running naked and afraid. Oh, wait a minute, that sounds like something we talked about earlier, doesn't it? Picture Him running naked and afraid. Picture Him covered in pig slop. Picture Him stinking like a pig pen. Picture Him having to run that way. He, he, he didn't have the luxury of trying to get Himself all fixed up. He was below that point. A lot of us say, i got to just get myself fixed up and then I'll come back home. Bad strategy. He's coming home and He's coming home naked and afraid and dirty, and stinking. And he can't imagine anything else. And the Father says, convincing that he's otherwise. And so he gets him. Come up here, Paul, for just a minute. Can you picture me? He says, put, put this robe on him. we got to cover him. You see, because you, you can't look at his nakedness. You can't look at his sin. and You can't look at the pig slop that he's, that he's in. I don't want you to see him that way. Because in my eyes, that's not who he is. In the Father's eyes, He's always been a son. In the Father's eyes, He may have gone and squandered His fortune, but He never could lose His inheritance. Ooh. <laughs> he couldn't lose that. Because that's determined by the Father. And the Father says, I need you to see Him the way I see Him. This man is a son. Put my, put my best robe on Him. I need to cover His nakedness. I need to cover His fear. I need to cover His shame. I need to cover His smell. Mm. And then he says, put, put some sandals on his feet. Why are we putting sandals on his feet? Because servants don't wear sandals. You remember he said, I'm coming back to be a servant. The father says, oh no, you're not. Uh-uh, that ain't, stay up here. <laughs> the, the father, we got one. The father ain't done with you yet. He says, put, put some sandals on his feet. Because in his mind, he thinks that all he can ever be is a servant. Put his sandals on his feet so he'll remember that only sons wear shoes. Go get a ring and put a ring on his finger. Ooh, oh, let's don't do that. You know what that represents? That represents authority. Oh, can you just hear the religion? Stay right there. I'm going to go stand over here and be the religious for a minute, okay? Can you, can you just picture the religious? They going, oh, no, he did not put a robe on him. 
nasty self. Who does he think he is? Oh, sandals. Oh, uh-uh. Does he remember what he did? Doesn't he remember how he treated his father? And he going he gonna to treat him like a, like a son? Oh, uh-uh. Oh, and then can you imagine when he pulls that ring out? And they're like, <laughs> huh? Oh, wait a minute. This guy's got to go through like some, some programs and stuff before we're going to give him any authority to do anything. Look here. We gonna, you might get to come to the table, but you're going to be at the back of the line. And we're going to let you spend about two, three years feeling sorry for yourself and us talking about you, and eventually after about 5, 15, 30, by the time you die, we'll preach your funeral, and we'll talk about how good you were. But right now, you need to pay, buddy. And you, hold on, you're going to give him a ring? And the Father says, yeah, I'm giving him a ring. I'm restoring him fully. Yeah. I'm, I'm, into, I'm into full restoration. So I'm... This is Adam revisited. Adam, Adam is, is naked and afraid. And he's trying to cover himself, but he can't do it. And Jesus says, my, the heart of my Father is for you to be fully restored. So Jesus dies on a cross so that we can get a royal robe, one that is white. It's fine linen. It's, it's linen because you can't work for it. Jesus said, I bought it. And I will put it on you. When you receive Christ, you get a robe. And when you receive Christ, you get sandals. It says, you're not a servant anymore. You might not can imagine it, but I can. And I'll imagine it for you. And then I'm giving you a ring. You have authority. You might not even know what to do with it yet, but don't worry. I've got that settled too. I'm going to show you how to live like a son. Thank you. So here's my thing. Many of us understand in the story that, that there's that place for us where we feel like the prodigal. And, and you've got to understand the Father's heart for you. And I, I hope I have I've clearly communicated that. Boy, I sure want to. I sure want you to know that's the Father's intention for you. But, but here's what I need some of you to do. I, I need some of you to change characters in the story. And I need you to no longer see yourself as a prodigal. I need to actually get you to see yourself as the Father. Did you realize that in the Bible, you're not always supposed to see yourself as the prodigal? You're not always supposed to be the woman at the well. You're not always supposed to be the blind man or the leper or the one who was covered in sin and shame. That eventually you're supposed to move out of that condition and see yourself as a son who Jesus is, who says we are joint heirs with Him. You're supposed to see yourself as Jesus on the earth. Jesus moving through you. Jesus working in you. Salt and light. Can you imagine? It's my greatest joy. is to be able to find those that I think the world wants to shame and condemn and try to get there first. There is no greater joy in my life. I run around town looking for prodigals. And I want to get there first. Because frankly, I'm scared for some people to get to them before I do. Because I don't know if they'll treat them like they're supposed to be treated. They'll treat them like a slave. They'll let them stay like a slave. In fact, they'll try to run them off if they can. But what I want to do is, I want to get there first. 
Like the Father. You know what I want to do? I want to commission you guys so you'll get there first too. Now some of you know what it's like. Some of you have had the privilege of somebody in this place coming and getting you and putting a robe on you and shoes on you and a ring. You've had that privilege. But I want you to be able to see yourself as something different now. I want you to be able to see yourself as the one who can go out and find the prodigals that are coming home and put robes on them. you got to see yourself different. So I want to release a group of people who can go out with robes and rings and sandals. And you're going to face some people who are going out and they are going out with the fury and the fire of God. And they think they're right. But I humbly disagree with them. And there are people that think you have got to make that person sorrowful and shameful and you've got to threaten them with hell and you've got to keep the fire hot because if you don't, well, they might go back to the distant land. And so we don't want them to go back to the distant land, so let's, let's punish them and let's, let's, let's shame them real good so they'll never want to go back there again. <laughs> Can I just tell you a quick story? I have been married for 21 years. I know, I look incredibly young. <laughs> I, I got married at five. I was five, Brantley was eight. I've been married for 21 years. And she has rarely threatened me. You notice I said rarely. I've, I've rarely been afraid of her. Now, she's made me afraid of her a couple of times. But the majority of my married life, I have not been afraid of her. And it is not fear that keeps me in love with her. It is her love for me. That has kept me for 21 years. You see, love is powerful glue. God is powerful. It'll, it'll pull you in and, and it'll hold you. And I, I don't think I've loved her nearly as good as she has loved me. Don't say amen, please. <laughs> but, but for 21 years, she's kept me by her love. Now, if a woman can keep a man with 21 years of love, don't you think that the love of God is good enough to keep His kids? Yeah. You see, the Gospel is not come on back and feel sorrowful and shameful and pitiful for the rest of your days. It is come back and experience the love of God. Because if you have ever tasted it, it gets hard to leave it. Yeah? Yeah? If you ever tasted the love of God, it's, it's hard to walk away. And if you do, it's hard to wake, walk away very long because it pulls you in. And so we need to, to be those who are pulling people in. Those who have made mistakes. Now, some of you may be thinking, but Kevin, I, I've, I've returned and then I left. And then I, I returned and then I, then I left. And, and You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I think all of us feel that in some way or another. Can I go on and just establish that? That, that for most of us, there's something inside of us that says, I could have done that better. Or I shouldn't have done that. We all have some regrets about how we're living, believing that we should live better. Because after all, God is perfect. So when you're going to measure yourself against that standard, you're going to fall short. And, and so it is not that 
that I can reach His standard that allows me to be a son. It's that He loves me that much that He lets me be one. Yeah? And, and, and so there's times where we can go in and out, in and out, and in and out. And I want to tell you something that I think will help you. I heard it not too long ago among a group of Christians. Let me use Celebrate Recovery. A lot of stories in Celebrate Recovery. A lot of testimonies. And I've noticed over the years, not just with Celebrate Recovery, but there are people who tell stories and they tell them a little bit different. I'm going to use somebody I don't know. I'm going to use them right now. Chris Shrewsbury tells her story sometime. And I, and I love, don't hold your head down. And I love her story because when she's telling it, she's got a, a colorful past. But she has no twinkle in her eye for it. She, she, she's not happy about it. When she talks about her past, she, she hardly wants to talk about it at all. She mentions it because she knows that it will help somebody. But she doesn't talk about it with a twinkle in her eye. Do you know what I'm talking about? There, there are times where you'll hear a story of somebody telling their story, their testimony, and they get kind of like proud almost of how bad they used to be. And they get a little twinkle in there like, oh boy, I used to run around with the best of them. Man, I was a womanizer and I could drink you under the table. And man, I could do all... You see the chest start bowing out? You know, like, man, when it came to sinners, I was one of the best of them. <laughs> I get real worried about those testimonies. Because I'm afraid that that person still likes the, the, the distant land a little bit too much. That, that you have not reached the place of the prodigal that says there is nothing there I want to go back to. You see, there is a place in our life where we go through a time of sorrow just like this prodigal. You've got to go through it and say, I've got to lose the gleam in my eye for the sin of my past. I've got to come to a place where I realize that thing is a dead-end road. Some of us have said, if you can just get me back on my feet. Oh, look, I'm going to go right back because I still like it. You see, there's a difference between coming to an end of yourself and getting to a place where, man, if I could just have some money and get back on my feet. Oh, wait, what would I do? Oh, I'd go right back over here because I still like this more. So there is a place for godly sorrow. But then that sorrow has to immediately turn into being received. Now, the prodigal, a couple other things, and then we're going to go. There is, a, there is an opportunity, if we can be too satisfied and go back, there is also a place where we can get stuck. Does anybody ever feel stuck? You ever felt stuck? Like, I, I can't quit. I don't know how to get out of this. I'm always going to be this way. There's a place in the distant land that tells you you're never going to do anything else. And I will tell you that if you allow yourself to be alone in the distant land, that probably is your condition. But you have got to make yourself vulnerable. You have got to drum the courage up to come back to community and to stay in that community because it is the, the distant land that wants to get you stuck. Oh, and by the way, don't try harder. Okay? Any of you ever done that? I'm just going to try harder. I know i got problems. I'm just going to try harder. And, and if I try harder, I'll be able to fix this and then I'll come back to the Father. 
you need to come to your senses. You need to come to yourself. Which is you can't do this without the Father. Make yourself vulnerable. And then, for us to be that, that Jesus. So I, I want to meddle here at the end. I saved it to the end because I didn't want to make you mad until the end of it. Can I talk to you about men and women for just a moment? Women. <laughs> I know, right? You're like, where is he going? Women. Women can live with an incredible amount of shame, especially uh, those of you who are married, those of you who have children. You can live with an incredible amount of shame that you are simply not good enough. And you feel like you got to do everything. Like you got to be good at everything. And when you're not, it seems, regardless if anybody's even saying it or not, you, you can just feel it sometimes that I'm, I'm, I'm not effective at work, I'm not effective at home, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very good wife, all these things, and you begin to heap all this shame on yourself. But I'll tell you, if you're married, you're probably married to a guy that's heaping an equal amount of shame on himself, which says, you know what, if I could just go out on the, the football field and hit somebody, if I could just get in a fight, I know how to handle that. I know, I know how to be violent and to conquer things. But you know the one thing that a man can't conquer? <laughs> the look of his wife. I, that, that may be, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud because now, now we all naked and afraid, aren't we? <laughs> Woo! Boy, I just pulled everything back. The hardest thing in the world for a man is to know that the people in his life would look at him as though he's a failure. We'd rather do anything to fail. So what then is it for us to do? What we have to do is create a community where we have compassion for one another. And I honestly think we have to repent over some of the looks that we've given each other. And unfortunately, I've done them too. And I, didn't, I don't think I did them with the, the look of trying to shame anybody. But has somebody ever done something and you're frustrated with them? Let's see if I can do this look. I don't know if you can pick this up on Facebook or not. Who am I going to do this to? I'll do this to my dad because he knows it's not true. He's my hero. So he'll know it's not true. But you look at somebody and you go, <laughs> you know that look? It's like, <laughs> it's like, what? What are you doing? You know that look? You did it to your kids, right? You know, you're like, what are you thinking? Or you looked at your spouse and you went, how could you think that? And that person, they look, they see that look and they go, oh yeah, I'm worthless. Yeah, I'm, there is nothing, I'm broken, there is something wrong with me. So I want to tell you today that before you, I, I want to try to repent of the way I even look at my family. Because I don't want my wife or my son to ever think that I'm ashamed of them. Because I want to carry the heart of Christ. That they are beautiful and wonderfully made. And that I love them. I don't ever want to look at you that way. I don't ever want to, you tell me something that's going on in your life. And me go, really? You did that again? I, we just talked about that last week. Oh my gosh. You know? And he go, yep, there you go. The pastor thinks I'm stupid. You know? 
So here's what I want to do. I want you to I want you to stand up and praise team. I want you to come. And while you're standing, let me talk to this person for a moment too, okay? You came back. You were vulnerable. You took some risk. You you came back. And maybe you maybe you came back to the to the church and when you walked inside you you felt like, "Oh yeah, they don't want me there." There's countless people that leave churches because they think, I, I just didn't feel like I was welcome there. You know what I think that is? I think that's shame talking. I think that's shame trying to tell people that they don't belong. So what I'm going to challenge us as a church to do is, is to run to every person that we see walk through that door and get a ring and a robe and some shoes and get it on their feet as fast as possible and let them know that they belong here. And then some of you, you you came back and you're still here. But you have refused the ring and the robe. Oh, can can I talk to you for a minute? Oh, that hit home. I saw it on your faces. I saw it. You came home, but you're just like the prodigal. You can't imagine being anything else other than a servant. And so you say things like, oh no, I couldn't do that. Because of my past, I, I can't do that. Or, no, you don't really know who I am when I go home. I, I don't have it all together. And if you only knew what I don't have together, you'd never ask me to do anything. Actually, I got a ring. I'd like to put it on your finger. Because you need to be fully restored. I think there are some that have come back to Jesus. You've received forgiveness of your sin, but you refuse to live as anything other than a servant. And it's time for you, can I say it, to knock it off and get over yourself and realize that the Father wants to do this for you. Who are you to tell the Father that He can't honor you? Huh? Who are you to tell the Father that His ring doesn't belong on your finger? And that His shoes don't belong on your feet? Or that His robe doesn't uh, deserve to clothe your shame? Who, Who are you to tell the Father that He can't put that ring on your finger? I think He ought to be able to put it on the finger of anybody He wants to. And Ember this morning, He wants to put it on your finger. And he's tired of you pulling it back. He's tired of you refusing to live below your privilege. And you are not being humble by staying in your condition. You're actually denying the heart of God for your life. It is no passing matter. You're not being humble. There's a ministry inside of you and you ought to carry it out. There's there's more for your life and you ought to let God do it. You ought to quit living, letting everybody else have their place. Saying, I don't deserve it. I'm going to let everybody else go. They don't have your seat. It's your seat. If you don't fill it, no one else will. It stays empty. It stays empty because you're the only one that can fill that seat. I'm going to say it one more time and then we're going to sing. If you came back to God and received forgiveness of sin but you have not received your ring in a robe, you ought to come get it. That's the heart of God for you to rise up, child of God. Rise up.